Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus the following episode of bread for the people is brought to you by side hustle bread long island's handcrafted artisanal bread company Side Hustle Bread is a family-run virtual bakery that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. Head on over to SideHustleBread.com for more information, upcoming appearances, and merchandise. My name's Jim Serpico, and this... Should I start with my name? Or should I start with this is Bread for the People? Do you like it like this? Welcome to Bread. Or do you like it like this? Welcome. Ready? Welcome to Bread for the People. Mine... Is there a script? Welcome to Bread for the People. I'm Jim Serpico. My next guest is an executive chef. Maybe not the kind you're thinking of. He knows just the right ingredients to keep the hits coming. He knows how to staff your joint from top to bottom. He is the writer of Basketball Diaries. He has executive produced Law and Order Organized Crime. I know him since about 1996. Please welcome writer, creator, director, showrunner, Mr. Brian Golubov. Thanks for having me, sir. Brian, it's good to see you. We were getting together a lot before the pandemic. Things were grooving and took a little turn. How was the pandemic for you, Brian? You ran a lot of shows. You're constantly staffed, or you were at that time. What happened to you during the pandemic? Just shut it down. I did one show during the pandemic, which was great. We had a Zoom room. I taught at NYU, but I got a lot of time with my kids. I walked, I walked miles and miles and miles in the park, which is near my house. Just kind of took it easy, but uh, did keep working. Did manage. You to did keep, keep working. working. Yeah. yeah. So you were able to keep your head together. You know, for me mentally, I'll be honest. I was I without realizing that I would welcome the break. I did kind of welcome the break. And, uh, you know, I slowed down from the grind of the hour and a half commute each way to Manhattan. At the time, I was managing a lot of people. I was developing a lot of shows. I was running back and forth to L.A., taking in-person meetings and networking. And then, uh, you know, I did a couple virtual things, but not many. And I baked a lot of bread, which kind (laughs) of led to uh, some stuff I'm involved with now. And I still love it. You know, so I, I definitely had some changes and it's funny, like I'm pitching shows again. I've got a couple, one thing set up now. I'm about to take out another pitch, but it's all zoom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You've made your whole career for New York. Like I did. There's not many of us, but you were constantly going to Los Angeles, right. To take meetings. hundred percent. And I went back recently just for a couple of days, just to sort of show my face and see who was you know, who was around and meet new people. And a lot of people still aren't doing things in, in person. You, know, you go to LA and, and they said Zoom meetings back in New York. You know what I mean? It's very odd. Exactly. Yeah. People aren't used to being with each other anymore. It's, it's a new skill. It's the new world. Yep. Imagine being a young guy, young writer starting out and going through this. Well, I don't think it works, Jim. I mean, I think part of it, Part of what's going on, and you know, I did this Zoom room during during the pandemic, is you don't get to do, and I don't mean this in sort of a patron, you know, patronizing way, but you don't you don't get to mentor anybody. You don't get to know the young writers. You don't get to 
seek them out, you know, because a lot of times you're in a big room and a young writer is afraid to or reticent to speak his mind in front of everybody. But when you're in the room, you go, oh, man, that that kid's got something to say, but doesn't feel comfortable. So you grab him in the hallway. You'll grab him when you get a cup of coffee. You say, I saw you itching in there. What did you have? They'll say it. It could be an idea that we build on. And it's how you it's the writer's hallway. You know what I mean? It's not always the writer's room. So I feel like it's very formal on Zoom. It's a very different process. And it's very hard to get to know people who you don't who you just meet. So I think a whole generation is 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 gonna be hurt in a way. I think that's the biggest tragedy. I think that you and I could work on a show together over Zoom because we we have a shorthand, we know each other. Yes. I think once you start having that hierarchy of people without the power who, like you say, are afraid to speak up. And from there, you know, in their shoes, they want mentors, but there's, they do. there's not many opportunities to have one. And, you know, we're kind of in a lot of trouble and it's not just in writing rooms. It's no. every industry and, and we'll stay with show business because that's how we both know each other. And that's what we both do. You know, my son, uh, Cole is out in LA working out there and he does go in person to the production company he works for, but there's not many other people in person. Right. right. So at least he gets out of the apartment. Like imagine being a 22 year old who transplants his life to another city like Los Angeles for show business. And you still have to work out of your apartment and you don't even get to bond with your peers who are going to 25 years from now be running Hollywood. hundred percent. No, it's crazy. I, I, the other thing, Jim, that's going on is that the writing is now so separated from production oh. on a lot of these streaming and and cable shows that you'll you know you'll write your ten episodes and it won't be for months later that they get produced. And the writers very often now don't produce their own episodes. It'll be one or two people that oversee, and there's a director, and they don't have writers on set. So what used to be a whole skill is also getting lost is that writers are no longer on set going through prep, you know, location scouting, casting. The writing is now divorced from the realities of making something. I also think that's a completely lost education. I mean, you know, you're, you're a physical producer, you really do it. And there was, you know, many generations of New York writers were known for being on the ground, producing our own episodes. And I feel like it's getting lost. And it's, and I think quality suffers, but again, it's a, it's a skill that's kind of being devalued. Let's assume for a second that the people listening to this show don't understand exactly how that works because my perspective is there was always a divide. However, what you're saying, like now <laughs> there's, there's not even a chance so you, you jump in here and cut me off because you've run these rooms. But when a show is in production, let's take show mm -hmm. X, right? Yep. That's shooting in New York City. By and large, the writer's room in Los Angeles, not, not Law and & Order and not the big New York shows, but other shows. And they might have a staff of, of nine writers at various levels, right? There's a hierarchy yep. of the executive producer all the, way, all the way down to writer's assistant, maybe story editor yep. right on top of that. Those people are all working on these scripts before anyone in production, including the director. The director on television is, is work for hire. He's brought in way after this stuff was written. Yep. And they hand this script off to the director. Now, there is a writing executive producer who's very involved with that room. Yes. And most of the time, also very involved on set, but not all the time. Not all the time. No. Then you have Which what's is also tricky. Yeah. You also have a producing director, just to muddy it even more, who's a guy who will direct multiple episodes in the season and whose job is to, when a visiting director comes, is to make sure that all the episodes have a similar visual style and there's some continuity from week to week, even though you're using multiple directors. So you have all these different fail-safes to try and make it feel like one show. And you know, I, I right. know you know this as well, but... The showrunner also will tone with the director. And what you mean by tone is you go through every scene of the script and you talk about what you intended, what your writers and you intended for each scene. And it's pretty in detail. You know, this should be the feel of it. And, you know, we, in our visual language, we don't do uh, handheld. 
you know, we like to do very traditional to set up close, close. We'll move the camera for these kind of things, but you will take a director through the way that you shoot a show. Does that include and, what the people are wearing? Because they may not be familiar. Maybe this is their first episode. Hundred percent. In those meet in those tone meetings, you have all your department heads. You have costumes. You have the editor there. You have the director of photography. So you have the show. Basically, the 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 everybody with a major job on the show is in these meetings with the director, and you will go through each department and you will try and get you you know a uniformity of vision. That everyone is on right. the same page. And the director will say, man, I didn't see it that way. I really saw it more as, uh, can we throw that thing right. outside? Because everybody's sitting down and talking. I'd love to get that thing on the move. Can we actually do it on the walk from the elevator to the squad room? So we don't, we're not just sitting there. Hey, could we do that? Yeah, we light it like this. You know, so everybody, by the time you shoot, prep is like three weeks long. By the time you shoot, you should have been through every scene a bunch of times. And by the time the cameras roll, Everybody should be on the same page, ideally, to be making the same episode. What complicates that then, is you're late with the script. There's big changes. Casting <sighs> isn't right. Um, people are out with COVID. Then you, then you know, your schedule is thrown into you know. There's a million ways it can go wrong. But that process. Let me so get you to, you let know, me jump is, in here if you don't yeah. mind. So, so the writer who wrote that episode is in yep. the writers' room in L.A. Maybe they're a mid-level writer, and guess what? This the network and studio are not going to provide enough money for that writer to be in Los Angeles for three weeks of prep plus a week and a half of shooting. So that person's not even in the meeting. So the right. goal of the meeting is to make sure that this director, who's a one-off director, doesn't fuck things up. Yes, absolutely <laughs> right. But ultimately, Jim, that director leaves, and it ain't oh, yeah. on him. We stay, they go. So, well, not only do they leave, this was always like, this was interesting to me. And this kind of want to make, make me go towards the path of a writing producer yep. of my own stuff, which is not always in your own control. But I definitely have gone down that road and been lucky enough to have it happen a couple of times. But that director does the editing pass with the editor who's there all the time. It's the same yes. t editing team. The director doesn't have the feel of the edit and they don't really do a ton of work on the edit. That's the other thing people don't know. And directors may argue this point with me, but I've seen it firsthand. Like the editor who's edited 100 episodes of a show knows how to edit the show better than the director. The, the director may be able to the director's cut always. Right. The editor's cuts were horrible. Some of my editor, um, some of my director friends you know, who are good friends of mine and have edited my shows, they may be listening, but the cuts were horrible. Right. Right. And it was then people like us that would bring it home. Yes. Yes. Well, Jim, you know, the thing, the thing I think happens with the directors, and it's something that I always say, especially when you're on a network show and you have to tell the story in, you know, 42 minutes with five commercials, is I'll say, you know, look, I know you want to do that shot where you're moving down the car and then we're going to slowly pick up the guy. So we ain't, none of that's making the show. So if you want to do right. that elegant shot, you got to start them talking from when that shot moves or it ain't going to make it. Right. So they always, there always is uh, that desire to, to be a filmmaker, which you want. So it's the hard shots that sweep from the thing and then all this stuff. And I'm telling them, I know you love it, but ultimately this is a, this is a plot point to plot point business. So you got to do your filmmaking within the scenes, you know, so it's a discipline, but what'll happen in a director's cut, just to my experience is if a shot was a real pain in the ass and it took them a long time to get, and it was their baby shot, all those things are winding up in the director's cut. So the director's cut will come in 10 minutes long and it's got every beautiful shot. And you're like, it's gorgeous. We can't film. We can't air that. It's 10 minutes over. Yeah. We got to do that merciless thing that I was telling you from the jump. You know, so it's always like the realities versus sort of a, you know, and, and like you said, the editors know the actual rhythm of an arable episode where a director and you're hiring them to bring their art, but their rhythm, they're going to bring their rhythms to it. And hopefully, you know, the best marriage is where you get both. You know, you get a director like Ed Bianchi or somebody who wow. has done everything from, yeah. you know, Sopranos to The Wire to Better Call Saul. He'll come in 
And he'll say, I have an idea for this show. I want to do it all and close up and I want to do this. You go, God bless that, do it. But he knows how to do his style within your style. Because he's he's one know, of the best. One of the he, absolute best. He's an outlier. He's an outlier. He's an outlier. You know, uh, you, so, now yeah. you want to talk about another recipe. There, by the way, I, I love the analogy to the food business because it is so similar. It's unbelievable. But a recipe for disaster is doing a pilot. You know, so <laughs> you, you, we developed a pilot together. With, we did. With Michael Rappaport. You and I at CBS. We did. Now, the, <laughs> now Michael is a beautiful person and very grounded. So I'm not talking about him when I, when I talk about what could happen when you develop with talent. But in that case, I'm a non-writing producer. You're a creative. We're trying to do a show. Maybe we bring an idea to an actor that's got some heat and we don't know much about, right? You're always taking a chance. You hear maybe some good things, maybe you don't, but you know the network's interested in them and we get that person sure. involved early on and we start developing and it could go well, or it could go really bad at that stage. It could go really bad at that stage. Now we set it up, we sell it, we get it to the network. They want to green light a pilot, which doesn't mean it's going to series. It doesn't mean it's ever going to go on air. And now we have to bring in a director. Now pilot directors have egos. Yes. And they want to bring their spin to this thing that we've been working on for six, seven months. And, uh, you know, what, what happened to me was like, the more I did this, cause doing this 30 years now, it got to the point where I was doing this longest than some of these directors, right? And that's okay. Maybe they're, maybe they got, you know, they specialize in doing that thing. But the truth of the matter is when you're fucking sitting on set as a non-writing producer or creator writer at the same monitor, these motherfuckers are sitting at. You start to absorb it and you start to understand what directing is. Yeah. You know, and then you combine that with the fact that we just spent six, seven months developing this thing that they had nothing to do with. It could be bad. And I had one experience with that with a director who got the right to shoot the pilot. We approved that person, spent some time doing the prep, was barely around. We tried to sneak out whenever he could. Said he had to work out of camp for a week. He left prep. We didn't even know that was the thing. <laughs> the guy had some power because he had a credit on the wire and it was fucking crazy. Yep. You know, like it's almost luck when everything goes right and a pilot comes out great and it goes, it beat all the odds every fucking step of the way. Yes. There's and it went to series. Yep. Eight million ways wow. to die. You get killed by the costumes. Oh, yeah. You, you know, get a bad edit. It, it's, it's very, very delicate. And that's why the notes process is so perilous. Because you say you start pulling on that string. The whole, you think it's a small note. You start pulling on that string and the whole thing's going to fall apart. It's very, very delicate, especially in the beginning where you're trying to figure out what, what pleasures you're offering the audience. You know, like what your contract is. This is what you're going to get every week. And you're developing those pleasures for people. Yeah. And you start to mess with it. You go, no, 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 we're not doing that. But it's sometimes there are people that you can't control or say no to, even though you're the one who, yeah. you know, brought it to life. So it's a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy business. It really I'll give you another example on the other side and I'll use names. Uh, Please. We, we sold a show and we made a pilot that ultimately did go to series. It was starring Juliana Margulies called Canterbury's Law, written by a great writer who you may know. He was young at the time. This was his first sale, Dave Erickson. Mm -hmm. so Dave originally had this script about um, a troubled attorney who was a male. I believe it was our agent, who was a great agent, Jeff Benson, who had the idea to swap the lead to a female. We got it to Juliana Margulies because we had some heat. We had Rescue Me on the air at the time on FX. She, she, someone sent it to her with a typo in it, and she thought the script was for FX, but it was for Fox. She took the meeting. Wow. And Yeah, that's true. It's fucking true. <laughs> and uh, she signed on, and they wanted to get 
a cool director. So this is the other side of it, right? You want a name director, a cool director to bring something to it. And we ended up getting Mike Figgis, who I love. To this day, I love Mike Figgis. And he did a great job on the pilot. And he really, like, he was involved in bringing some cool creative shit. But, like, on one level, the point, he's known for leaving Las Vegas and independent cinema. And he's not your average run-of-the-mill journeyman TV director. Which is why you would think they want him. Right. And he had some ideas out there. He wanted to do the whole series in black and white. And I remember delivering the message to Sony. And <laughs> they ripped my head off. They fucking, they wouldn't, as nasty. Like, this is not, not there's no pleasantries, man. Right. It was like, are you fucking crazy? There's a reason television is in color. Blah, blah, blah. And anything, listen, maybe that was too extreme. But, but by the way, who knows? Maybe everything's too much the same. Maybe it's homogenized. But I guess the point I'm making is in that case, all they want is Mike Figgis' name. They don't want yes. new ideas. Right. Right. It's the other yeah. side of the coin. It's very hard. Yeah, he's, he's an amazing filmmaker. But I think filmmakers get uncomfortable with the schedule. You know that TV directing isn't only about about talent it's not only about vision it's also about doing it on the clock making your days it's much more athletic you know that there's you know if you're on a big network show and you know that i mean you know this from a million things but if you're writing and shooting and it's just going 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 and you're doing 22 of these and you got eight days to shoot an episode these guys are amazing the real pros that come in like so oh brian why don't you direct an episode you directed a little movie i'm like you don't understand what the real guys do, the craft of a really solid TV director who knows how to, where to put the cameras and manage his time and deal with talent and do it all, you know, within a certain stricture. Those guys are fucking unbelievable, you know, and they I don't are think unbelievable. They respect. Yes. They, they, maybe that's where you're going with it. They don't get enough respect because what you're describing yes. exists and they're good and they don't get enough respect, but there are uh, a lot oh. of, big directors that have a great partnership with a DP that they always work with yes. who specializes in being a DP in that thing and not every director. Because I, I guess I'm making a case for myself having mm -hmm. been in your shoes and made the choice to direct. You know, there's still there's so much that goes into directing that doesn't have to do with the camera, where the camera is placed, even though that's somewhat necessary but if you have an amazing DP, like I remember studying this book by John Badham, who mm -hmm. directed Saturday Night Fever and teaches at that school in Los Angeles an hour outside. Chatham. Chatham. He's the direct yeah, yeah, great school. He ran the director program. And I transcribed that book. I went through it and I summarized it and I studied the shit out of it. Yep. And he like I knew when you're talking to actors that you could confuse the shit out of them if you give them more than four words. Absolutely. Nobody knows that. You know, and then he, he went through, there was 10 pages of words, just one words to use to give an actor direction. And I used that the first few times I directed and fucking actors loved it. Yep. They didn't have to remember or decipher what the fuck I was trying to say. Best so I guess okay. I'm, I'm... Yeah. What's that? Say, paste, paste it up. It's okay yeah. to say that to an actor. Yeah. You know, so uh, there's so much that goes into it. It's, it's really a choice that you, and now I'm going back to you. You've made the choice, like, I don't necessarily want to spend my time doing that. I'm going to let those people do it. I'm going to keep concentrating on what I'm great at and what I want to continue to do. You know? Yes. But I know Although you could I, do it. I like the director. I mean, I, I do like it. It's, it's um, and it's a, super, you know, it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge in ongoing shows as well because you have a cast, you have a core cast that knows the characters in a way that sometimes they're even better than the writers and certainly better than the incoming directors. And they will say, I'm not, I'm, I don't go there. I'm not doing that. That's not where, I, you know, that's not what I do. And well, here, a lot of times. Here's why the good actors have spent as much time thinking about their character. 
and probably talked to the showrunner about it and understand that character inside out and kind of helped create it along yep. the way. Yep. Not in advance. You know, they, they had nothing to do with the script. But as it's going on, you're right. The good actors learned, are a big part of that. I learned so much. You know, people say, oh, you know, it's a network show, whatever. But I worked, uh, I worked very closely with Tom Selleck on Blue Bloods. And I learned yeah. so much from this guy. I don't need to say all that. Cut all that. I'm going to walk to the yeah. window. I'm going to look out. My audience likes to watch me behave. And I'm going to come and I'm going to say one word. And it's going to be this. Or no, my, my audience does not want me to want to see me afraid. I know you want to write it. I know it's your big show off scene, but that doesn't work for me. You know, we had this big debate where his, um, his cops and his, you know, his office, uh, head off this whole terroristic attack and, and they saved the city. And I had written this scene where you have the, the, uh, press conference at the end and he acknowledges the great work of all his officers. And it was a close call. And he said, I'm not saying any of that. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, to me, terrorists win if they make you afraid, if they get fear into your mind. So what I'm going to say at the end was, it was a false alarm. There never was any attack. The city is safe and sound. Uh, go about your business. I'm not even going to admit, I'm not going to take a bow. I'm going to tell them the city is safe and was never in danger because I don't want them to be fearful walking down the street. And that's the New York City that I preside over. And that's the kind of leader I am. And son of a bitch, man, we rewrote it. And I was like, it's better. It was interesting. You know, that he didn't, that he didn't need the credit. He needed, he needed to calm everybody down. And uh, it was just really interesting. And he, there were scenes that he said, look, this is the best scene in the, in the show. And I'm going to cut it, the entire thing. Because my audience doesn't want to see this woman dress me down. You think it's me. You think it's my ego. It's not. They don't want to see it. And it's a trust between my audience and me. And I won't play the scene. It's your best scene, Brian. It's probably your best scene of the season. And I'm going to cut it. And I'm like, it's interesting. You know, and you're in this dialogue that's about a lot of things. You know, because I was always trying to push an agenda on Tom because I knew if there were things that he would, if his character would accept, it might expand what his audience was willing to expect. So we were always in this political conversation because he knew what he stood for and who he was. And he liked that I was pushing it, but he would only let me push it so far. And uh, I loved well, it, man. He respected, it. he respected where you were coming from and he felt that you respected him. Yes. But it is interesting how that evolves, he, he, he didn't pitch that show, right? No. No. He didn't create that show. He was cast nope. in that show. He was. He was. And it became his show. It became, yes, and it became his message. And uh, it's very, very interesting to watch it develop. And he's right. Still on the air. And he's right. People yeah. show up in droves. So the other guy like that was my partner, Dennis Leary, who really knew his characters. Yep. And knew what the message and what his audience wanted or what he felt he should be portraying. And if the audience came, they came. Maybe he didn't give a shit. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, Dennis knew what he wanted and what he wanted his characters to say. So here's the other interesting thing. So he was the creator of these shows. Yes. So imagine that, what you got with Tom Selleck, and he's the creator and trying to write for that guy. Because now, he, he's, the, he's playing it and he created it. It was very hard for us to work with other writers. Yes. And have those writers give Dennis a script that he would say, this, is, this works which is why our shows had no writing staff. It was essentially Dennis, Peter Tolan, and then Evan Riley, who was an assistant, but was in the room all the time with those guys. And it was better for everyone. And it worked. I don't even know if you could do that anymore. I don't know with 
You you can you can do it. There there are shows that are very, have very tight staffs. The I issue thought the Writers Guild was was saying something about it, but I don't know. Well, you have shows now like you know White Lotus where Mike White wrote them all. You know that guy wrote all the Queen's Gambit. You know it's not there's no staffs, especially with all this run up between writing and 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 production. There's frequently very very tight staffs. They don't want to deal with all the noise that you got to deal with now and putting a staff together and they're just, you know. Well, it's not just that. Did you see White Lotus? I did. You know, without spoiling anything, it was my favorite it's great. two seasons. Of, I love it. I love it's different tonally. Yep. It's dramatic. It's funny. It's suspenseful. You can't wait to see what's going to happen next. And I, I really haven't come up through the ranks with Dennis and Peter question can a staff of nine people deliver the consistency that a show like white lotus has is it well that's auteur auteur television in a way i love that i i think i know i love that show i have also worked on shows that had that and i saw it work and i saw when we brought other people into the fold it made it more complicated to get it to where we needed it to be it's kind of like that thing that we were talking about with directors where everyone's meeting with them to make sure they don't fuck it up. I feel like right. it could potentially be that. Well, big staffs are hard. And, you know, you really can't break a story with 10 people. You, you really can't do it. So it's... What do you need, 12? You know, nah, you need three. You need four <laughs> at most to break a story. I mean... You know, me, you, and Anthony in that room messing around with our rock and roll thing. That's the magic, man. You know, it's yeah um, that you yeah. get too many people. But what the reason, there is a reason why you have big staffs on network shows traditionally. And that's because traditionally writers did produce their own episodes. So you would have one script prepping, one script shooting, one script that was being broken, one script that was being written, one in post. So you would have this machine going and you needed a 22 lot of episodes a year, 22 episodes a year. You needed 12, 10 to 12 writers because people got busy. People were on set. People got knocked out of the rotation. So it wasn't it, the idea that all the people, you know, when you're pre-gaming, you know, when you're in preseason and everyone's talking about the big, the big board and what you're hoping to accomplish, you have all the writers together. But once you're running and gunning, you rarely have all the writers in the same room. It's always little packs of three, little packs of two. And it's the showrunner's job that all the material comes to the showrunner and he makes it seem like the same show every week. So the script always passes through the showrunner's hands. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, writers hate it. You know, hey, what? He cut all my good stuff. All my, you know, uh, and I was, I, you know, I've been a, a staff writer much more than I've been a showrunner. You're like, oh man, you know, why did, why was that scene cut and what the, you know, then you watch it, you watch it on the air and for better or for worse, it matches with the one the week before and it matches with the one after. And sometimes it, it, it takes away some of the highs in a way. But like I said, there is, go back to your cooking, you know, metaphor, there is a recipe for shows that, and, and it's the meal the audience wants to eat every week. That if you, you know, you go to a restaurant to get a hamburger and you come in, they go, oh, it's vegan this week. You're like, fuck that. I, don't, I come here for a hamburger. You know, so you, you know, you got to make sure if you're making hamburgers, you're making hamburgers. Even though it'd be beautiful to have, a, you know, scallops on the fucking half shell, you're not serving scallops. And it's sometimes hard to say to a writer, your scallops are delicious, but that's a side dish, man. We, we do hamburgers here. Um, so, right. you know, that's hard, man, because you also... Like I said, with visiting directors, with big staff, you hire people for different points of view. You hire them for all their special sauce. And you hopefully, when it all comes together, you're going to make something more interesting than you would make by yourself. And I've, lo- mm-hmm. I've loved that part of it. And that's the whole thing with young writers, too, is 
You bring somebody in whose uh, dad was a fucking prison guard. They went to work with their with their father, and they know they're, they've soaked up that stuff, and they have their own stories. And that's the cool thing about a staff, especially when you're not doing um, procedural, when you're doing like a show that has some, you know, some guts to it. Everybody's stories come together. You make this thing that only those people in the room could make. And that's where it gets really exciting. You know, when it's not the 22, when it's the 10 episodes or the eight episodes and you're I agree. all really making something original and you, you choose your writers carefully, that's where it gets really cool. You know, uh, yeah. that's a real collaboration. Yeah. And I guess there is opportunity for that now. I mean, there is very few t- 22 episode shows. You probably worked on the few that there are. Yeah, a lot and of I've streaming is going. Yeah, I've worked on the small ones too, so it's it's a different. Yeah, definitely two different jobs, really. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I prefer the ten, but that's what I know. I'm also oh, at I, a different prefer- stage in life too with this all, you know. Yeah, you can't I'm do not the twenty two for that long, man. It it, no. it it really ages you and um, no stresses you out, and it, it's very hard task. You know, the guys like Warren Light or somebody, they're, they're fucking beasts, man. They're, it's endurance, too. You know, it's, it's really knowing how to lead. I can't it- believe how Warren Light, I, I mean, he's a great writer. I'm not even going to go here, but it, it's not easy to do 22 episodes. <laughs> it isn't. No, but, but look, I'll give you a great example of like, because of, he, really, he really taught me a lot of shit, right? Like we we did the show called uh, Lights Out, which was an FX show that we really loved doing. It was great, and uh, I was on set, and I remember the scene was mother is waiting for her daughter to come home for the prom, and it's late, it's late, it's late. She's watching an old movie, but she's getting nervous because the kid's out late, and there's something in the oven. So I'm on set, and I got the the movie is supposed to hit at a certain point. She's checking her phone. She sends out a text. She's waiting for a text back. The oven dings. I got everything rolling. I'm working with the director, the actress, the whole thing. I think it's all fucking great. And the dailies come out, and Warren says, You fucked up. I said, What did I what do you mean I fucked up? So I want you to watch these dailies and tell you what tell me what the problem is. Because you're not telling the story. I was like, fuck, what did I do? He said, Look on the phone. What time does it say on the phone? 8:45 p.m. What mother is worried at 8.45 p.m. if their kid's coming home from the prom? Everything else is perfect. And you didn't check the time on the fucking cell phone. Right. And we're not telling the story correctly. And I was like, fucking hell. You know, but that's when you realize. And he said, I don't care. I said, the director of the prom. He goes, I don't want to hear any of that. You're the producer on set. That is your set. It's on you. And from that, you know, and yeah. I was like, okay. He said, everything else is good, but that doesn't make any sense. Now we're going to have to fix it in post. It's going to cost a lot of money. It makes you get in that monitor and do it right. You know, but it also tells yeah. you something about how he watches dailies. You know, so it's like, I, I wonder if young writers are getting that education. You know what I mean? Because it, 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 it changes the way you look at things. It's all about telling the story. They're only getting it if they have a guy like you who cares about being a mentor who yes. goes out of his way to bring them into those editing situations when they don't have to and not require to anymore. Right. That's it. If other people well, are looking at these people as widgets because I had to hire them and whatever, and I'm in a rush because I got to do something else and don't care about these other people, they're not getting it. Well, you know, I, you know, we've talked about this. I also teach at NYU, and my joke is always that I'm training my own assassins. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I'm training the people that are going to take my job. But that's what I think it's about. You know, so what we'll do on set is, especially early in the year, is uh, experienced writers producing the episode, and I'll pair them with a staff writer who's going to shadow. So they don't always like it, because especially with, with COVID at the end, that is there's another chair. But I will have <sighs> the young writer shadow for half the shoot at least, shadow the experienced writer, go with them on through every stage of prep, location scouting, everything, 
so that when their episode comes up, if they get an episode gem like at 14 or 15, they're emboldened to at least participate in a way that's, that's amazing. educated. It's amazing. You know, I didn't have to go on the location scouts for any of the shows I did, but I put myself in a position to go. And the reason I say I didn't have to go is we had line producers. Of course. Terry like Orant was a line producer for pretty best. much every show we've ever done. He's one of the best there is, right? Yes. And uh, I would go because Dennis wouldn't go. He created the show. So I guess I was the eyes and ears for him. Yep. So maybe that was the reason. But my point is I learned so much from being on the, I learned everything from being with all the department heads and understanding how, how a scene gets shot. Yes. I never went to film school. My film school was going to location scouts and being in the prep and being in all those rooms. And you're just talking about it from every angle. But Jim, the other thing is, it's not just an obligation. Like if you ask, you know, I was out to dinner with Warren the other night. Uh, me and Roman and Warren went out. I said, well, what do you miss? It's being, being part of a team. It's being, you know, it's that camaraderie. It's the, I miss that. I don't have I miss that. that. Yeah, it's not, it's not the it's not the glory of this or that it, it's being, it's being part of this crew, grab assing in the van, talking the lunch, getting to know each other. So human beings are you making can't a grab show. ass anymore, man. This is not. Oh 2000. shit. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> I can't even grab my own ass. I'd be fucking sued. Um, is Warren you know not saying? on a show? He's taking some time. He, he, um, he's doing some Broadway stuff, but Broadway. he's taking some time off. Okay, no, I'm going to segue into, all right. So Warren, I know Warren for a long time. I remember his play yeah, Sideman. The best. And, you know, I don't think I'm telling anything out of school. Like showrunners of these shows make a lot of money. Yep. Like, like a lot of money. Money that would be life-changing for anybody. And, um, you know, it's also a hard job and mentally taxing when you do it for a long time. And we were talking about those 22 episodes a year. So there was always talk of development, development, development. And my job as a non-writing executive producer at the time is to try to get guys that are great writers to develop with our company and then go pitch them. And Warren, was he was burnt and done and he wanted to develop. So that's the other thing. People don't understand about someone like you, right? You have many jobs as a writer, but, but let's break it down to two. You could go out and pitch shows and get paid to write the pilot script. Mm -hmm. Or essentially, you could go for a job for hire to run a show. They're two very different things. They are. And it's pretty hard when you're a showrunner working all year on a 22-episode show to put the time into developing a really good pitch and delivering on your promise to deliver a really good pilot script. Can't be done. It can't be done, right? So it's a, really a choice. Can't be done. It can't be done. It can't be done for you when you're in season on a show like that. If you're doing a 10 episode, you can do anything. So I'm being honest with you. That's a different, that's a different thing. You, okay. can, you can get to 10. The exhaustion of getting to 22, the amount, the, if you get a script that comes in funky, and you have to triage that script, and it's going to happen. And every department is waiting for it. You know, every 10 days, you need a script that can be shot, Jim. I mean, I can't even explain the pressure of that. So I, I think it is a choice. But not only that, aren't you involved in, like, what director we were getting Everything. in? Are you looking at the casting? Yeah. At one time, you were at the casting sessions. Now it's only casting tapes, right? Yeah. I mean, I miss, I miss the sessions. But yeah, you're, you're involved in every part of it. And I, when I was a co-EP, I was able to uh, develop, just barely develop and deliver services. Once you're in that washing machine as an as a executive producer and every, every fucking skirt and shirt is coming to you for approval, then you're trying to have a, some semblance of life. You can't do both. Um, yeah. so, so Warren and I, we were down the road with a development project, like very down the road. And, you know, there are people involved in that organization that could be very persuasive. And at the last minute, I lost Warren after many months of work. You know, it was upsetting. Uh, it is but upsetting. It, it's, it's, it's the name of the game. 
You know, I, I I'm in say, a seat where I need those shows to go because when they go on the air, that's when I get paid. I don't get paid to develop them, but I have to go through that step of development. I did that for 30 fucking years, man. Like yep. spec development, man. Go pitch, fly, 10 meetings, sell, blah, blah, blah. And somehow I got through it. <laughs> I'm doing it right now. I mean, and it's, it's your, you know, all you got, I was called doing the Willie Loman. You're out there yeah. with your ideas and you're, you're smiling a shoeshine. You know what I mean? It's, um, it is, it is a very, very hard, especially if you're trying to feed your family with it. But a company like, like Wolf, they feel like they're paying you enough to have your fucking sole attention and they ain't wrong. They're so, not wrong. They are. And, uh, those guys, they make shit and it's serious business. You know, you get. They, they they don't really leave a lot of room for argument. You're either mobbed up with them and you're in or you're out. You know, it's um it's very interesting, you know. Uh but they are two different businesses. The in those two things you just discussed, the dream is to show run one of the babies that you sell. So that you're right. you're the creator. I did it. Right runner. I did it with Benders. It didn't last very long. But I got through all the hoops and got it on the air and got to direct it. I mean, it Unreal. was unbelievable. So let me ask you, was it what you saw in your head by the time you got it, got it on it the was. screen? It was. It's amazing. You completed the thought. It, it, that's the dream. You know, and I actually, it's so funny. Like the cast was, we had that, uh, you know, you talk about eight days, you talk about all these things. Like I was always like doing the scripted basic cable character things that had less money than network shows. And we really knew how to produce for a budget. I mean, it's still our specialty and we were doing Bender's three day episodes. That's how we did Marin. That's my second series right? that I did that. And there is something amazing about knowing how to figure out the puzzle that you could actually write to it and pull it off. Yes. And that's kind of where my head's at now with everything, with, with my baking, with my pursuit of maybe opening some type of retail situation that's an experience. And with my television production, it's like you're at the point where we have these cameras and things and we could write and we can make stuff because we want to make it and we make it outside of the system and just go, just put your head down and do the work and see what happens. That's what drives me. Even well, if it's my making question you, my question yeah. for you is, you know, and people are listening. I mean, you, you know, you're known as a producer's producer. I mean, you really, you're really, really fucking good at what you do. Do you miss banging heads like that? Do you miss having a company? Do you miss making your days? Do you miss? Well, I have a company. No, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, like, do you miss? Oh, being, being on, on set with the 85 yeah. people? Yeah, absolutely, man. Are you kidding? I, and again, I was alluding to that. Like, I don't have that even in like, so listen, I manage a few people that are doing very well. I've got a development situation, believe it or not, set up somewhere for me to be on camera in food. And we're pitching scripted shows. Right. Is, I, had, I talked yeah, with Tom, I had a long talk with Tom. Right. So the dream is to get some of that going. And I would love that. Do I want to, and listen, if it went on, even the best shows end. You've been you've been on some shows that went really long. Yep. But most yep. shows have a lifespan and then they end. And I I kind of like that. Me I kind of like working on a project for a set amount of years, less than five to seven, and then it ends, and I, I go on to the next phase of my life and whatever it is, and try to do something new. I do like that. Would I love to get involved in some kind of shoot for four months in any capacity? You know, whether I created it or write episodes for or, it or, or, for or produce I mean, it. Yeah. 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 I would love that. I'm trying to do that with my own shows right now. If the Food Network thing goes, I would think it would be really it. interesting. Well, I would produce it. I would be in it. It would raise my profile in the food space. So if I ever do the other thing in the retail, it would change the game for that. It's, it's interesting. Right. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We got on about... I'm yeah, in, I am in, in the in-between. I am, like, alone a lot. So, yeah, I do miss. I do miss. There's something great about, especially if the personalities and the people you work with are, are, are great and cool and you guys are banging heads in a creative way to accomplish this feat that's just unbelievable. Like, the feeling of being able to shoot anything even if it's a short film that you put heart and soul into it like it's pretty amazing yeah and you still have to do it setup by setup scene by scene you know there's no shortcut to it that's that's kind of what i love about it you know i mean there's some cgi and there's some effects and shit but you still got to build it from nothing the other thing that's a little frustrating for me is i have this body of experience a lifetime of experience. I mean, 30 years is essentially a lifetime of, of work in film and television. And I have it. So I've got nothing but better. And my only real shot is to create my own thing. And that's what we're doing. And we go out and pitch or, or, or work with a writer who's helping us. But, but, you know, I'm not a hireable guy. I don't as a think. Producer, as a producer, you're not a hire. I don't think so. That surprise. That would surprise me. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I haven't thought about that lane, and maybe because uh, I'm not a line producer, right? But you, but you were physically producing those shows. I mean, you were making it yeah. work. Yeah, I guess that was my I mean, question. Was, you know, because I'm always thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always thinking about survival. You know what I mean? Like just having <laughs> living in Brooklyn with the kids and the whole thing. Honestly, right? Sometimes you just got to think about how do I take care of everybody and keep going. Well, I you have that I down. Yeah. You know, like my, my, my way of, of, I've always like looked at the future of it all. And I have these various lanes that are all related. I have a record company, right? That puts out comedy albums and gets played on Sirius XM. And right. I've got the management yep. company. I get paid to write scripts when I sell them. Got a bread business that I oversee. So, like, it's all manageable for me. Right. Right. But I want to hit the home run somewhere, and I got to focus on what it is. Right. Right. Yeah, I haven't hit the home run yet, man. I mean, it's, and it's, um, I've made a living. I'm, I'm pounding. I'm doing, I'm doing damn well. But the home run for me is one of these, one of these passion scripts. And I, and I, I keep developing, Jim. Even, well, help me understand what you're defining as a home run. Let's be honest here. I mean, you, right. you, you, because I'll come on, man. You were the executive producer of Law and Order, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter right. what. Right. That's a home run financially. A, it, it, yeah. Oh, fi- no, no. Financially, financially, that, that's a really good point, Jim, actually. That's a really good point. If you're separating it out, that job was my, sh- was all the years of my work. That was my ship coming in financially. Okay, no so you're not talking about financial home run. You're no, I'm talking about creative, and 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 okay, I, I also awesome. want to separate it out to knowing how much luck it takes to maneuver yourself into a position to have a job like that. Where my dream space goes, and that's you know that's just that's hard work, and that's a hard job to keep, and it's a hard job to do, and the whole thing. The dream is. When you create a world in your head that starts with you, the characters are born with you, you live and die with them, you write the script, you get lucky enough to actually sell it, write it for write it for a good company. What I haven't had happen is it going over the top, getting made, and getting a season with my world, with my people, where I really have some... And that's why I asked about Benders. How did it feel? Like When you watched it, was it what you saw in your head? Because when you're doing a big show, yeah, when you're doing a big show, and this is 
this is correct, by the way. This isn't a gripe of mine. When you're doing a big show, you're part of a big machine. You're, you know, you're entering Lone Order SVU, and it's been on 21 seasons or whatever it is. You're hoping to put some of your special sauce on there and, and bring the show to some places it wouldn't go, but you're, you're, you're creating within parameters, and you should be. What I'm talking about is being the one to set the parameters, is being the I one I also to- had that feeling. The more successful one was Marin. I didn't write it, but I was involved in the... Ev- I was the first guy. First, there was no one else. It was me. I approached Marin. We talked about it. We brought on the pilot, right? You know, and then I was on set and on. I moved to Los Angeles to do that show to help show run. The, you know, we had writing showrunners, but I was on all the location scouts. My family was in New York. I was in LA and I felt I got to put my fingerprints on that. Yep. You know, and I'm also like, I don't have a problem. I was always able to figure out like, cause what you're talking about is doing it through the system, which is really great. You know, and the, and the, that is the big leagues. Like you're talking about creating this thing, having it go all the way and get it to an Amazon or a Netflix or whatever the, those places are. Yep. I have tried a few times. In fact, Marin was one of them. Like we made that pilot on spec with David Madden at Fox Television Studios with no yep. network attachment. And I have no problem doing that again without even a studio. Like I feel like we're writing. We've written through the pandemic. We we've got spec. TV scripts that have never been shopped or seen. Right. And part of that, it's hard to sell right now. Everything is, uh, there's so many reasons why it's hard to actually make a sale, but there's less, there's more buyers buying a lot less than ever. I agree. And only buying from certain people. Yeah. But here's what, here's what I'm responding to in what you're saying is that part of the job, and this is the part of job that, that, when you are pounding through 22 episodes of stuff and it's really hard is part of the job of being a a creative person is to keep your dreams alive. Keep the, keep, keep your vision of the world. The thing that's different about you, your, whatever your artistic sensibility is to fight, to keep that alive. You know, when you're talking about, Mm. you know, that Warren couldn't do the pie with you at that, at that time right there. It's like, those are, that is a hard thing. Is that you do have to sublimate your, you know, your thing into the bigger thing, and I, you know, I love hearing how much you guys are writing and doing yourself, and it's really something that I feel is an obligation for me as well is to keep that other thing alive, the thing that goes. I'm look, let's let's face it, you know, and it's something I always say to my students: ego's not a bad thing. You have to think on some level what you have to say is worth watching or is special in some way. That's the business. I have a story. I want you to hear it. I want I want to tell you a story. And I need money to do that. I need your belief and I need actors. I need cameras. You know, so to keep that thing alive, you have to have animation in yourself that can't die. And it's hard. Oh, 100%, but why not why not do it knowing how hard it is to thread that needle for what are they looking for right now? Yeah, I don't do that. Will they yeah. be looking for it in three months, even if you make the sale? Will it change? Will that mandate change? Yep. Are the things that are on the air working? So now there's not enough room? Right. Or is there something similar that was working and it's not? And now your thing is too similar to the thing that's not working. Why not write a $5 million budget movie, get independent financiers with some cool people involved in the production? Me, you, Tom, and Anthony go and make an independent film. Right. Hey man, I listen. I had one collapse about right before the pandemic. I had a I million dollars that fell apart. We lost the money two weeks before we were going to shoot. I'm I, listen. I'm trying to skin that cat in every fucking way. But what, let's with, say, what if it's accomplished? Isn't that the home run? We well, yeah, end I mean, up I mean, with an I Academy mean, Award we, nominating independent film. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. To me. And the way I've always operated is that is more realistic to accomplish. Because I know I agree with I you. I have a good script and a good team. I'm getting that money. There's no question. Right. The movie's getting made. You know, right. so I don't know. It's it's, it's tricky. No, the, it's the, tricky. The TV I had, I had thing one... is threading a needle. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
and it and it's a, it is a business in its bones where like i said i had i made one independent movie and i had another one almost it got real close and i would say that the the independent movie i made with anthony roman did all the music my best friend uh who i know since i'm eight years old produced it we lost the money several times we re-raised it it wound up costing us money uh movie has has some pleasures could have been better it is the it is the endeavor of my life. It is the greatest thing I ever did because it was awesome. passion from beginning to end, and we could have let it down at any point, but right. we refused. We refused to let it die, and that's, that's what, what it's all about. What it's all I about. Feel, I feel like I I have that attitude about everything I'm doing right now. Right, you know, making. I, I I'm obviously passionate about. Not just making bread, but it's like I've created a brand. We're doing something different with bread. I'm talk. I'm doing a podcast. I talk to people like you that are involved in show business, but I also talk to some of the best bread and pizza makers in the world and learn from them. Yeah. And I'm also like excited about learning about food television and like and and by the way, non-script television big deal right now. Yes, very much. We watch it. We watch you it know, all the time. Who shows the whole thing? It's almost like someone else said it. It's like you, ha- the energy you put out there, you know, reaps rewards. And I'm I'm purposely not putting as much energy pitching scripted television shows. We are pitching some, but in my heyday, I had an office in New York and Culver and Culver City, Los Angeles, and I would sell a minimum of ten projects a year to get some pilots made. I'm not doing that anymore. That's crazy. It's a it's a crazy hustle. Yeah, and it's it saps your it saps your animating spirit. I mean, you know, I'm you know there are times where I always say I'm on output or I'm on input. Input is I'm watching things, I'm listening to music, I'm taking walks. Like you got to refill yourself sometimes. Yeah, you know. So, you know, but it's I'm with you, man. It's about those things where you go all the way and you refuse to let it let it die that it has to be done that's why ultimately yeah. i think i'm going to wind up writing fiction you know and just be able to tell my stories another way where i can you know communicate with a little yeah. bit less strife because it's a hard hustle man super hard let's that's leave them on some positivity if you're a young writer trying to break into the business it's still possible isn't it more possible than ever, I think. There's a million writers' rooms. I mean, you, there's a million mini rooms. Make sure you got a script you love, though. You know, make sure you you're doing your own thing before you get in there. But I think there's plenty of opportunity. I'm not just saying that. You know, I, I'm hiring people like that. There is okay. there is a lot of work out there. Brian, last question. Yes, sir. I want you to tell me what was one of your most memorable meals who you were with and why it was so memorable hmm all right well this is a, this is kind of a crazy one one of my favorite restaurants in uh in brooklyn used to be a place called coco roco it's a peruvian restaurant it was on fifth avenue between seventh and eighth park slope and i was very tight with there were two brothers who ran it and uh, he would bring me, you know, just delicacies from Peru from the back room, made me sea urchin cocktails and all kinds of crazy shit. But the bite of my life with him was it was the Fifth Avenue Street Fair. And he was just cooking from sheer joy. He had a huge, uh, like a metal thing with a fire under it. And he was making mm-hmm. a whole pig on there. Mm-hmm. And, um, Come to Coco. You know, he had and he had a hype man. Coco Roco, the Peruvian restaurant. And people were going crazy. And he knew my wife loved ceviche. And he was preparing the pork for me. And he made a ceviche mixto for my wife. And he kept, and he knew she liked a little spicy. He kept running into the back to get special bottles and potions. And she had a wait. And they were preparing my thing. And we tasted this food out there in the street. And we almost fell over. It was made with so much love, so much passion. 
music was going. And I think I remember it so well because he, he passed away young. He passed away soon after. And his brother oh. closed the restaurant down. And I'll never forget that day on that street watching this guy create. It, it, it was unbelievable to me. Wow. Like a symphony. That's a great- he had all the potions and lotions. and Unbelievable. And I still great taste tribute that to him. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome. Great, great tribute. Brian, thank you for joining me. And it was really good to catch up. Let's you and I break bread soon. We'll grab Roman. Yeah, you got it, buddy. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. This episode of Bread for the People was brought to you by Side Hustle Bread, Long Island's handcrafted artisanal bread company. Side Hustle Bread is a family-run business that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head on over to iTunes and rate and review this episode. Reviewing and rating is the most effective way to help us grow our audience. This episode was produced by Milestone TV and Film. I'm your host, Jim Serpico. Blessed be the bread, everyone. <laughs>